Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Our speaker today, Brother Rod Sharp. Now, um, Rod was commended where first? From Scotland. Scotland. Mm-hmm. Back in, I don't say when, it was a long time ago. <clears throat> but I do remember my first time meeting Rod. Rod was invited to speak at the camp when I was a teenager. And uh, we very much enjoyed the ministry, and I think it was probably... Bazillion years later, he came back for family camp. Yeah. And they loved him so much, he's coming back for a whole week this summer. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. So at this time, we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to our Brother Rod Sharp. Well, good morning, CBF. Good morning. Good to be with you. It took me 16 years to get here. <laughs> I knew you were here. I'd been invited to come, and it took me 16 years. Having said that, uh, here I am the second time within a year, so good to be back. Good to meet the folks that weren't out on a Wednesday night, and uh, certainly good to know what the Lord is doing through the preaching of the Word and the sharing of the Gospel in this uh, nitty part of the world. Everybody comes through the Orlando area for fun. Uh, We come for fellowship, don't we? Yeah. All right. uh, Revelation chapter 2. Let's pray God's blessing upon our meditations in his word today. Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity to come together, for the openness and the freedom with which we can come. Uh, Long may it last, Father, because as we look around us in this world and even in our own culture, we see an increasing uh, hostility to the truth of God. We uh, really have never experienced in our own lifetimes uh, such a time as this when the old rugged cross has been so despised by the world. And we just pray, Father, that we might have boldness in preaching what is the unchangeable and life-changing truth that is found in the gospel and is found in the word of God. We pray you'll speak to our hearts and encourage us today as we look at these uh, significant and important verses uh, that we've had read to us this morning already. For we pray, asking these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure whether I heard them in person at a conference or whether it was a recording or a a broadcast, but I heard Stephen Alford years ago say this, the church has a history, the church has a ministry, and the church has a destiny. Now thinking of the universal church, the global church, the worldwide church comprised of all true believers in the Lord Jesus. We certainly look back over the last 2,000 years. We look forward however long it takes for the Lord Jesus to return and take the remainder of his church back home. That will be our destiny. But the church has had uh, a rich uh, history. The church has had... uh, for the most part, uh, an effective ministry, and uh, we look forward to ultimately to the destiny. 
But I want to kind of bring that back to the, the local church, and particularly in reference to this church that we've read about this morning, critiqued by the Lord Jesus, uh, written down by John the Apostle. Uh, the backstory you're familiar with, I'm perfectly sure. John, who was stationed in Ephesus in his retiring years, was uh, taken by the Roman government out of the city of Ephesus, and he was incarcerated in the little island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And while in lockdown, John received a revelation from the Lord Jesus, but it was more than that. It was a revelation of the Lord Jesus. You'll have to read chapter 1 to get all the background and all the details but very quickly, John realizes that he is to write down what is being revealed to him at that time. Write it down and send it, and this would be the whole of the book of the Revelation, I would believe, to seven individual local churches, geographical churches, historical churches, and I'm convinced representative churches, and the Lord Jesus is expressing himself as he looks at these seven churches. He critiques them. I like the word critique rather than criticize because it gives opportunity for uh, good points to be emphasized as well as uh, the, the bad things to be highlighted. So these are seven critiques from the Lord Jesus, from the pen of John, that help us to understand what Jesus thinks of the church. So let's think about this particular church. The church at Ephesus. Well, it had a meteoric rise since those early days that Paul and his friends first went to Ephesus and preached the gospel. Spent a period of time there establishing the believers, helping them to grow and that history of the church um, represented a light in the pagan darkness of that ancient world. The, the, the rise of the church in Ephesus, I think, was steady. Um, in the early days, it had a certain momentum, but that momentum was going to eventually fade away. Now, the question that I think we all want to have answered is this. Um, how do you measure the effectiveness or the success, if you will, of, of any local church? How, how, how do you, can we graph it? Well, on a graph, we've got, you know, the two uh, coordinates and, uh, you know, hopefully the church is going to grow like this. But uh, I suppose that, uh, like the stock market, the growth of the church would be, you know, this, this kind of way, uh, ups and downs. The question I want to ask is, by what metrics do we measure? What standards of measurement do we use to describe the uh, effectiveness, the, the, the health, the vitality of a local church? If I'm not mistaken, as I look around in our culture, 
it would seem to depend upon such factors as uh, numbers, um, budgets, buildings. Uh, folks, in our day, if I uh, can put you in my age bracket or thereabouts, in, in, in our early days, um, we measured the vitality of the church and the number of conversions, the number of baptisms, the, uh, the fact that lives were being changed, the fact that a local church was making a difference as a light in the darkness of the surrounding world. Mark Dever was a student at Cambridge University. He went there to get his doctorate. And when he returned to the United States, he was invited to become a pastor at a historic church in Washington, D.C., a church with quite a history, but a church that for a number of years had been on the decline. It was called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. What a great location in the city that is the capital of the country and, and right there close to where all of the important things of government take place. Well, Mark Dever was concerned with the fact that this church had been declining for years, and so he got his leaders, his elders together, and they went back to the New Testament, and their desire was to formulate some principles that might lead to true spiritual growth in the life of the local church. And as a result of their prayers and as a result of their studying, uh, they came up with something that has become quite an effective program used by some of our assemblies today called the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Let me just outline for th for them for you. Number one, preaching. Number two, biblical theology. Number three, the importance of the gospel. Number four, a focus on conversion. Number five, evangelism. See, we're going from the gospel to conversion, now to evangelism. Number six, membership. Uh-oh, did that raise a red flag for some of us? Membership. This is what they came up with. According to the Bible, church membership is a commitment every Christian should make to attend, love, serve, and submit to a local church. It's good. I would add something else. And support in whatever ways is appropriate. So we call it fellowship, but uh, Mark Dever and his compatriots uh, seem to think that uh, a commitment uh, to, 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 to the local body of believers in the local church. That's number six. Number seven, discipline. Whoa. Good song churches do discipline. Number eight, discipleship. There's a difference, isn't there? And number nine, leadership. And again, a little red flag goes up. Leadership in a Baptist church. One man calling the shots. Listen to what they came up with. The Bible teaches that each local church should be led by a plurality of godly, qualified men 
called elders. Where did they get that? From the Bible, folks. And these nine marks have been used effectively in churches of all denominations, of all shapes and sizes, to regain and restore health and vitality to the local church. But you see, the problem is, most of the churches that I'm familiar with would probably go over this list and they would check all of those boxes and say, there you are, there you have it. We are biblical, New Testament believing churches. And yet, when you look at what's happening, you see nothing happening. And if I'm not mistaken, the church at Ephesus would have taken this list as well and have said, haven't we done well? Look at this. We're following all of these things. And yet the Lord Jesus is to point out that for all the good things that Ephesus had in its history, it was on the decline. But let's think about this history. A church planted by the Apostle Paul. A church that followed, obviously, a New Testament pattern because that was one of the earliest churches that was uh, gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus. A church that had the privilege of uh, not only those years of the Apostle and his friends, um, Paul later on, at, towards the end of his life, uh, pays a fleeting visit to the elders from the church at Ephesus and warns them of some of the things that are likely to happen in the immediate future, uh, grievous wolves entering in, not sparing the flock, such things as that, uh, false doctrine coming in. Um, uh, later on, uh, Ephesus was to have the privilege of having young Timothy in their midst, and the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, we call them the pastoral epistles, are just encouraging a young man to be a faithful shepherd uh, among the saints in the city of Ephesus. And then laterally, as we've noted, the Apostle John, the last of the 12 original disciples, the, the only remaining one, probably in his 90s by this period of time, um, is, is there in Ephesus. So it might have come as perhaps a shock, but maybe not, to find that this is the first church that is addressed by the Lord Jesus as John uh, listens to what the Lord is revealing to him in what we know today as the book of the Revelation. So we move from the history of this church in Ephesus to think of its ministry, um, I write to the church at Ephesus, verse 2 of our chapter, I know your works and your labor and your patience. Interesting. You know, when the Apostle Paul is writing to first, uh, the Thessalonians, in the beginning of the first epistle, the first chapter of that epistle, Paul talks of these qualities, but he describes them, he qualifies them, he talks of their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. 
In fact, the three words are just very stark in the book of the Revelation. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. I, I think we'd conclude for that that there was certainly some activity uh, being maintained in the church at Ephesus in those late days in the first century. Secondly, as well as an activity, there was a clear orthodoxy. The end of verse 2, you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and has found them liars. At least you're aware of the fact that false doctrine might possibly creep in, and you've tried to take measures to prevent that false doctrine from ruining your church. And then the third thing, not only a, an activity and an orthodoxy, but a, a tenacity. Look at verse 3. And you have borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and have not fainted. So they, they were a church that was kind of holding on to the truth. But, but, next verse. First word of the next verse. Nevertheless, However, but, and, and although these first things, measuring the church by their history and by their ministry, uh, might have given some kind of encouragement to those saints in that ancient city of Ephesus, now comes the, the watershed. That one word, nevertheless, however, but, See, it's possible to extol the virtues of a situation, but in your language, make it clear that everything is not as it should be. No doubt when I get home uh, to North Carolina next uh, week, my wife, Amy, will say, well, how, how was your trip to Florida? Fine. How, how, how were things at uh, Claremont? And I begin by saying, well, you know, there's something coming here. The answer wasn't fine, wonderful, great. The people were friendly, you know. Well, I had a nice time there. People were very, very warm and uh, encouraging. I enjoyed seeing folks I hadn't seen for quite some time. And, um, you know, and we had a lovely time at the, uh, the Lord's Supper and... Uh, we had some nice uh, new music presented to us. And then, but the coffee was flavored. <laughs> oh, well, well, you know, that, that, that's just a personal thing. You might say, we had a wonderful time. They gave us flavored coffee, you know. But the Lord Jesus is very personal when he says, but there's something I have against you. Everything might look good on the outside, but nevertheless, I have somewhat against you the, the, because you have left your first love. I always like to put a title at the top of my notes just so that I can kind of keep to the theme. Here it is, the church that lost its focus. Actually, it doesn't say that this church lost their first love, but they left it. That's interesting. 
Because they would claim, we still have a love for the Lord Jesus. We still have a love for the brothers and sisters. We still have a love for the word. We still have a love for the lost. But somehow that love has been displaced by a love for something else, perhaps. They have left their first love. Actually, ESV says they've abandoned their first love. But I would think that this is just a a classic example of losing focus on the things that are most important. The Lord Jesus goes on to say, yes, you have left your first love. And then remember from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else. I will come quickly and will remove your candlestick out of its place, except you repent. Now, there's the destiny. It's not a very bright one. If we see the outcome of what the Lord Jesus was saying to this church that had left their first love. You know, by this time in the history of the church, they... Corinthian correspondence of the Apostle Paul had been out there for probably 40 years. And Paul had clearly preached the primacy and the priority of love. Let me remind you of some famous, very famous words. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal here's the church that focuses and emphasizes good solid preaching eloquence oratory Who doesn't love to hear a well-delivered, well-thought-out, well-presented message? Right. Next week. (laughs) No, last week, Brother Don Pell brought a great message on reconciliation. See, I do do my homework. Listen. Listen. Here's something that I I think not only applies to our local churches, but applies to our own personal lives as well. What is it we have here? We have an understanding, a false understanding, a misunderstanding, that that when the word of God is preached with oratory, with skill, with, with, with good language and grammar and so on, that that's communicating. Well, it may communicate things that might affect our head, but perhaps not affect our heart. So there, there we have it. You know, the, the, the churches that emphasize preaching, that's good. But, you know, if, if it's only just rhetoric, uh, not, not too good. Then secondly, let's look at the, uh, let's call them our our, our charismatic friends. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge or have faith that I could remove mountains and have not love. I am nothing. Maybe this is just outward show, pizzazz. And some people like that kind of presentation up and dancing in the aisles and so on. Oh, isn't that a mark of the Holy Spirit working in your midst? Maybe. Maybe not. I think you, like I, are very uncomfortable in such a situation. And if we are uncomfortable, don't you think most of the people around us would be uncomfortable? My goodness, some people would be uncomfortable here today with us, sedate as we are, all right? But if we're jumping up and down, see, if you don't have love, no matter what you're doing, you're reduced to nothing. And then, and then look at the philanthropic churches, those who uh, preach and teach and observe what we sometimes call a social gospel, taking care of the needs of those around them. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So here are the churches, and they've got all kinds of programs to meet all kinds of people and all kinds of needs. They've got divorce care. They've got grief share. They've got a, a soup kitchen. They've got a clothing closet. We want to reach out into our community and help. And surely there's nothing wrong with that. If that is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. If it's a means to the end, we're, we're introducing people to the body of Christ. We're introducing people to a community that loves each other and wants to reach out and love to others. And a community that more than anything else wants to present the good news of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And without that last part, what we're we told. You um, give your body to be burned, you, you feed the poor, and you, you have not had charity. It profiteth me nothing. That's philanthropy without love. And as I think we're very quick to be aware of, um, you don't want to improve the lot of people around you so that they are well-dressed, well-fed, well-educated sinners still on their way to hell. Our aim is to share with them the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. Well, that's where we would be if it were not for that grace that had touched and transformed our lives. So love has a priority which trumps everything else. And without that quality of love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, all our efforts, all our activities, all our ministries, all our programs are going to fall on 
ultimately deaf ears that are not going to be responsive to what we would love to communicate to them. I think there's a good illustration um, in John chapter 20 of the importance of love and what we do for the Lord. Remember after the resurrection and the Lord Jesus appeared a few times to his disciples and, well, I'm sure those disciples were wondering what's, what's going to happen now. Acts chapter, uh, John chapter 20, I said Acts, John chapter 20, Peter says, you know, I'm going to go fishing. He's going to revert to what he's used to, what he's comfortable with, something that won't put any pressure on him, there won't be a challenge. He, he can just go out and fish. And his friends say, we're coming with you. So they're fishing, and early in the morning when they come into the shore, they see a lone figure in the shore, with a, a fire lit on the shore, and they realize it's the Lord. And the Lord invites them to breakfast. And after breakfast, he calls Peter aside. Peter, a minute, a minute, please. And three times over, he asks Peter, Simon Peter, son of Jonas, you love me? Oh, of course, Lord. Here we are, still your disciples. Yes, 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 no doubt about it. And a second time, Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, Lord, of course, why, why would you ask me again? I already answered that question. And then the third time, Peter, do you really love me? Listen, it's what the Lord Jesus says. Peter, do you love me more than these? What does that mean? The Bible doesn't tell us. We can only surmise. Peter, do, do you love me more than you love these boats and the fishing? Peter, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Or Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? We don't know exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying, but clearly he's focusing on the primacy of love. If Peter is to be used by God in later days and later months and years, Peter, you've got to get this thing straightened out. The interesting thing is, fresh in Peter's mind, he remembers himself standing by a fire in the middle of a courtyard where three times over he denied the Lord Jesus. Isn't the Lord gracious? He gives him three opportunities to confess his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third time, Peter can only say close to tears, I'm perfectly sure, Peter, uh, Lord, you, you know all things. You, you know I've failed you. But Lord, from the depths of my heart, please accept my confession that yes, I do. I, I, I love you more than these, more, more than anything else. Good, Peter, that's the answer I wanted. Now, you can go and feed my sheep. Now you can go and take care of my lambs. Now you can go out and you can preach the gospel of grace. And because you've got your priorities right now, you're going to see amazing things happening. And within a short while, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. 
He gives the invitation. How many people went forward? 3,000. Oh, I'm perfectly sure that there had been some pre-evangelism in the, in the minds of many of these people. They, they knew about the resurrection. They, they, they knew people who'd, who'd actually seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. Their hearts were, were open. Their, their, uh, their lives were ready. But when Peter preached, these people responded. Remember from whence you have fallen... What does that word fallen mean? It means that you're here at one point, and now you're here at a lower elevation. Remember from whence you've fallen. Remember, remember what it was like in those early days when you first came to know the Savior, when you first planted your church, when you first decided that there was a work for you in this area. Do the first things. Don't slack off. Remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come unto you quickly, will remove your candlestick out of your place, except you repent. Remember, repent and return to the first works. I don't know whether you remember or not, a duet, a popular duet, sung by two popular singers from uh, my generation, Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand, a song called, You Don't Bring Me Flowers Anymore. You don't sing me love songs anymore. It's a story of two lovers who drifted apart, but are evidently still just going through the motions. But the heart of their relationship has disappeared. The love has gone. You know, we often hear the phrase, Love as it matures becomes less demonstrative. Okay? You can identify with that maybe. We, we see a young couple hugging each other. We, we think that's cute. But if you see an older couple hanging on to you, you, you wonder if they're trying to hold each other up, you know? <laughs> In this case, love as it matures ought to become more demonstrative as we know and love the Lord Jesus on a much deeper and intimate level. It should be seen in our lives. It should be seen in our local church and the growth towards maturity that the local church exhibits. But that's not always the case. What does the Lord Jesus warn if you don't repent, I will come quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place, except you repent. Without being critical and without pointing the finger at any other group, wouldn't you believe that out there, there are numbers of churches 
and the lights are still on in the building, but the light of the gospel has gone out or become very, very dim. Florida is not the only vacation destination in this country. I highly recommend visits to North Carolina. We've got mountains and we've got the beach. There are seven working lighthouses now in North Carolina. That's only half the number that historically there used to be. Used to be 14. But with the passage of time, the erosion of the weather, the no longer a need for warnings in certain areas, shipping lanes have been diverted. Seven of them are either not there at all or just a crumbling reminder of what once was. And I just wonder if that's not a picture of the church. Churches have a history. Some of them have a most wonderful and stellar history. Churches have a ministry. But that ministry must be Christ-centered, biblically-centered, motivated by love, as we learn here. And if not, chances are that that love, having grown cold, is no longer producing that light and that warmth that would attract others to come in. I want us to close in prayer and then I want to play just a little clip that I think might be an encouragement to you. You may have heard it. But in that uh, clip, there's a line that says that our love is in danger of growing cold. And I want to pray that our love for the Lord Jesus might never grow cold, that our, our, our light for him might never grow dim, and that we might continue to serve him, live for him, and show him, present him in this increasingly dark world in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you again this morning for the genius of what we know today as the church. Our Lord Jesus said that he would build his church and even the powers of darkness could not hold up against it. And we pray, Father, that as we take our place as individuals and as a fellowship of local believers here in Claremont, that we might see your work continue and we might see the Lord Jesus building his church. We pray that this fellowship of believers might be a strong fellowship, a healthy fellowship, a productive fellowship. And we just pray that as this church prays some very practical prayers, that uh, in the spirit of love they might see God working and moving among them. We again come before you with our concern for perhaps a, a better location, a larger facility, um, perhaps an influx of 
younger families that would uh, help people to see that we're uh, reaching not only uh, the older element of society, but uh, the millennials and even even their children. We just pray, Father, that we might rekindle our love for the Savior and for his word and for the gospel and for the lost and allow you to work in us and through us. So we pray your blessing upon us and your strength day by day as we pray now, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says of his people, I give unto them eternal life. They will never perish and no one shall pluck pluck them out of my hand. Not our ability to hold on to him. He holds on to us, holding us fast. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, now and ever. Amen.